Now, it's verse 16 that I want us to think about this morning in this passage. I'll read it again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, what happens when the gospel, when the message of the good news of Jesus Christ encounters the world? A world which lies in darkness and unbelief. And this narrative of Acts 17 is one of the best-known encounters of this kind that we have in the Bible. It is the classic text where the gospel is coming to a completely pagan, Gentile audience. Because on the one hand, we have the Apostle Paul. Who's he? Well, he was raised an Israelite, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, worshipping the one true God, an Israelite, a Pharisee at one time, and now the Apostle sent by the Lord Jesus Christ with the gospel of life, which is Jesus himself crucified and risen. You have him on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have Athens, the great ancient city of world paganism, a picture of the world which in its own wisdom does not know God. And the question is, what happens when these two worlds meet? Well, this morning I want to look only at this 16th verse and to focus on Paul himself and ask the question, what did Athens do to Paul? What did Athens do to Paul? Before next week, God willing, we start asking, what did Paul do in Athens? You see the logic there, I hope. And the lessons from this event, because this is the word of the eternal and living God, are always relevant, always real, always bang up to date, as I hope you will see this morning. And the first thing we see is this. Paul's spirit was provoked by idolatry. We read that. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, what's Paul doing in Athens? Well, he's been sent there ahead of his two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, for his own safety, after experiencing a fair bit of unrest and trouble in other places. And he finds himself in Athens. How long for? We don't know. Maybe only a few days, maybe even a few weeks. That's where Paul is. He's in Athens. And what can we say about Athens? Well, Athens was the great city of Greek civilization 
of politics, of philosophy, of Greek culture. Go back five centuries and Athens had been undoubtedly the most important city in the Western world, if not the whole world. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know something of the uh, rich, varied, important ancient Greek history. But the glory days of that are now long since gone. Great statesmen like Pericles, great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they had long since disappeared. And yet Athens was still a city of tremendous importance. It was to the ancient world what London and Paris and New York City would be to the world today and will be to the world maybe for some centuries to come. So you might have thought that Paul would be glad of a bit of a city break in Athens, wouldn't he? He could see all the sights. He could try all the experiences. He could uh, tick something else off his own personal bucket list of things to do. But that's not what we read about in terms of Paul being in Athens. No, instead, while he was waiting for his companions, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, what does that mean, that his spirit was provoked? We might put it like this. We mean that Paul was all churned up inside. He was agitated. He was aroused. He was stirred up. Not so much with irritation as with a kind of indignation and even anger. He couldn't stroll around the beautiful streets and squares of Athens admiring the amazing architecture taking selfies of himself with the Parthenon in the background and putting it on whatever social media there was in those days. You know what I'm talking about. There wasn't any, but you get the picture. He was provoked to indignation and anger by what he saw there. But what was it that provoked him? Lots of people get angry today, don't they? They walk around streets and cities and they get angry and provoked today by any number of things. What provoked Paul? It wasn't poverty. It wasn't inequality. It wasn't corruption. It wasn't disease. It wasn't suffering. And I'm sure all of those things were there in Athens in in great abundance. They would have bound to be there in a great ancient city like Athens. But Paul was aroused and agitated and provoked and churned up inside because he saw that the city was full of idols. And the word used here in verse 16 implies that the city was overwhelmed with idols. It was swamped with idols. It was swarming with idols. It was sinking beneath the weight of these idols, as if the idols had taken the whole city over. There was an idol on every street corner, 
a temple, a statue, a monument, an inscription, a plaque to some god or goddess or minor deity or some great hero of of Greek history. Athens was a city of idols. The very story of the founding of Athens looked back to Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and to Poseidon, the god of the sea. Modern-day Athens, you can go there. The temples are still there to Athena and Poseidon and Aphrodite and Ares and Apollo and Zeus and plenty of others. And there were many, many more in Paul's day. But here's the question that we need to really ask and answer. Why was Paul so provoked as he was? Come on, Paul. Take it easy. Chill out. Go to one of the uh, lovely Greek tavernas in Athens. Drain a quick glass of ouzo. Snack on some olives and feta cheese and taramasalata and then get your lonely planet guide to Athens and look round the city and uh, enjoy the sights and sounds. Why are you so worried about all this? What's getting to you, Paul? This is the second question. This is the second point. The first was a statement. The first statement was that Paul's spirit was provoked by idolatry. My second point turns that into a question. Why? Why was Paul's spirit provoked by this idolatry that he saw? Well, if we know anything at all about Paul, where he had come from, what he had been brought up on, what he had believed since infancy, we should be able to work out the answer quickly enough. Paul was provoked And appalled because the people of Athens were worshipping idols rather than worshipping the one true God of all the earth. That's what provoked him. Now let me make a comment straight away. Because a number of us might be thinking along these lines and understandably so. Maybe Paul was upset for this reason more than anything else we might think. That all these people, in their teeming thousands and maybe millions, were all going to be lost. And their souls were going to be condemned. And they were all going to hell. And that was, that was what provoked Paul the most. Now, I'm certainly not saying that there was nothing of that kind in Paul's heart. We know that Paul urged and taught and pleaded with people to come to Christ and he did so with tears and indeed the fact that these people are indeed lost without knowing God and Christ is part of Paul's internal provocation and being as churned up as he is there's no question of that if we know Paul at all but that isn't the primary reason for Paul's agitation. Instead it is the mere fact of idolatry. What is idolatry? It is that the God of all the earth, the almighty creator God, the sustainer and provider of all life, is not 
being worshipped and glorified as he alone must be. And that infinitely lesser gods, who are no gods at all, are being worshipped and glorified in the place of the one true God. Now let's just think about Paul for a moment. We shouldn't think that Paul was naive. We shouldn't imagine that Paul didn't already know that Athens might contain the odd pagan temple or two. He knew that. He knew that Athens would be quite different to Jerusalem. But when Paul sees this city so overtaken and overwhelmed and as it were almost literally drowning under the weight of its own idols, his godly heart, his Israelite heart reacts with indignation and revulsion. He can probably hear the first two commandments from Exodus chapter 20 from Mount Sinai ringing in his ears. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, a jealous God, and so on. And here in Athens, Paul feels jealous for the honor and glory of this God, And he sees this God being mocked and disregarded and he sees people worshipping those things that are not gods at all. Sometime earlier, Paul had been on his first missionary journey with uh, Barnabas and they'd been in Lystra, what is now Turkey, Acts chapter 14. And God had enabled Paul and Barnabas to heal a man who had been crippled from birth. Do you remember the response when that happened? Do you remember what the people did? Well, they shouted out with one voice that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods, you see. They called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes. They began to offer sacrifices to them. Now, can you imagine that for a moment? If you'd been Paul or Barnabas, and you'd been there, and people began to offer you sacrifices and call you a god, how would you react to that? What would you say? Would you say, well, this is rather nice. I'm quite enjoying this. What flattery I'm getting. Well, of course, there was none of that from them. They hated it. They abominated it. They rushed out into the crowd, tearing their clothes, an expression of the deepest grief and horror and dismay. And they cried out, men, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and everything and the sea and all that is in them. Nothing could be more appalling for Paul and for Barnabas 
than for people to offer worship to them or indeed to anyone or anything other than the true and living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then we think of Paul's famous and quite devastating words at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. And if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and verses 21 to 25, because in those verses we see this great sin of idolatry being exposed for what it is. The great sin of rejecting the one true God and putting other gods in his place. And we see in the course of Romans 1 from verses 18 onwards how this sin of idolatry is the very origin and source of a people's and whole civilization's decline and collapse into every other kind of sin. These are devastating words from Romans 1 verse 21 to 25. Let me read these words. Read them with me. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is a text for our times, brothers and sisters. This is idolatry. Especially that last verse. To exchange the truth about God for a lie and to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I come to my third and final point. And it's this. Our spirits should be provoked by idolatry. Isn't it true that our society, like Athens, is full of idols Overtaken, overrun, overwhelmed, inundated, swamped, sinking under the weight of idols. And that human beings made in the image of God, that they should worship and serve this living God, are instead slaves. Slaves. And that you and I are in danger of being slaves to idols, which are not gods at all. 
not just London, not just the UK, but vast swathes of this world, this whole interconnected, networked, global village that we are part of, surrounded by, influenced by, tempted by, seduced by idols. And the vast majority of men and women and children all around us are idolaters no less than they were in Athens 2,000 years ago. And does this provoke us as it provoked Paul? And we must then see this. The idols of the 21st century, like those of the 1st century, are worshipped for exactly the same reason as they were back then. That people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, who alone is blessed forever. I want to apply this to where we are today. What are some of the idols that surround us now? What are some of the idols that we need to identify as idols? And I need to warn you, some of what I say may be unsettling and even controversial. But this is bound to be the case when we identify idols. Why? Because idols have a way of enticing and ensnaring Christians Doesn't William Cooper talk about the dearest idol I have known? You see, idols which are not God can become dear to the hearts of Christians. And when they are identified as being idols in our hearts, we feel sometimes offended and affronted and upset and even angry. This is not an idol. This is something that I need to keep in my heart. Well, this is where we need to identify what are these idols. And here are three And one idol that we certainly see today is the idol of the environment. The idol of the environment. The nearest thing to a state religion in most parts of the Western world is environmentalism. It's an ism, you see. It's a worldview, it's a creed, it's a religion, if you like. It's built on the foundation of atheistic evolutionary theory. It has its prophets and its priests. The Greta Thunbergs and David Attenboroughs of our world. Extinction Rebellion is the vocal and active expression of this idolatry. What are we here on earth for? What must be beyond dispute? In every school in the country, in every university in the country and in the world, throughout all the papers and the media, what is the indisputable reason why we are here in this world? What are we here for? We are here to save the planet. What is the chief end of man? It is... The preservation of planet earth and its biodiversity and everything, everything must be sacrificed to that great end. 
What is salvation according to this worldview? Well, it's realized when carbon emissions have been reduced to net zero. Then we will have arrived in a utopia and a kind of paradise. When that's been achieved, the environment is our God. That's one of the idols. I'm listing just three. There are many, many more, but I think these are probably the big three that I'm going through at the moment. The second one. I told you this might be controversial. The idol of health. The idol of health. And the present pandemic has thrown a spotlight on this idol. But the idol was in place and was being worshipped long before the word coronavirus had entered most of our vocabularies. The National Health Service is the great temple to this national religion. But the entire health and fitness industry, being worth billions, are supporting acts to it. What do I mean? What are we here on earth for? To be strong, to be healthy, to be alive and well. To be in the prime of life. To be eternally youthful, with all the energy and independence which comes from this. And into that worldview, where do other things fit? They don't fit very well, actually. The weakness and suffering of old age. The dependency of frailty and disability and illness. The vulnerability of being unborn, especially if you are both unborn and unwanted. All these conditions and times of life do not fit comfortably into this world view because they are not really living at all. And the great taboo is death, which must not be mentioned and must be avoided. The idol of health. What's life worth living for unless you are healthy? And then there's a third idol, the idol of self, the idol of me, social media, which in and of itself is no bad thing, friends, right? But social media in its various forms is the vehicle which drives this idolatry. It amplifies the attitude which cries out, as we said last week, this is me. Look at me. Say that you like me. Worship me. The most important thing of all is that I feel good about myself and no one must deny me that right. If you disagree with me, then you've offended me and you've upset me. And that's the worst sin of all. And in the last few weeks, a new phrase has entered common vocabulary. Have you heard this new expression, cancel culture? You've heard of cancel culture? It's this idea that uh, unless you agree with exactly where I stand, then I, I cancel you. I don't listen to you. I ignore you. I, I imagine you weren't actually there. What am I on earth for? What am I here for? I'm here to be me. 
I'm here to authenticate myself and promote myself and be the person that I want to be. Who are my friends? People who are like me. People who agree with me. People who like my social media posts. People who pronounce shibboleth the way I pronounce shibboleth. If you're not one of those people, you can't be my friend and you're my enemy. Now, I know that what I've said just now, taken out of context, could be liable to misunderstanding and some of you may well take offence. So let me say straight away that all these three things, the environment, our human health, and the individual human being, they're all good things. They're all God's things. In fact, they are, if you like, the three greatest things that God has made that we see around us. He's made the world and the universe Hasn't he? He's made human bodies. And he's made human souls. And they're all precious. And God says they're precious. But understand this. We need to see all these three things in their rightful place as being under God. And not God's themselves. That's the danger. We should care about the environment. Because it is the good creation of God. His tender mercies are over all the earth. If you're involved in conservation and in maintaining a clean and green environment, then you are doing God's work. We should be responsible stewards of this whole earth that God has made Manage its resources wisely, but we should not view this world and this universe as if it were some kind of Gaia, some kind of God. That is blasphemy. When we start doing that, we're out of kilter with everything, aren't we? And yes, we should care about physical health. I came out on Thursday nights for a number of weeks, most of those weeks, and I clapped the NHS... I did that. These NHS workers on the front line have been heroes in the face of this COVID pandemic. Of course we should care about our health and the health of people around us. God cares. God values health. The Son of God came into this world and he made the sick well and the lame walk and the blind see, didn't he? He cares about health. We should do what we can to limit the spread of this virus and every other kind of infection. But we need to put physical health in the right place as under God. He is in charge. He is sovereign. He is Lord. We need a biblically balanced view of health. We are bodies, yes, but we are also souls. Which is why us coming back here together, physically, to worship, is the best thing we've done. We need to know that illness exists, and it can be long term, and sometimes we can't cure illness. 
We need to know that illness may well be physical, but it can also be mental and emotional. We need to know that we are individuals, but we are also communities. We need to know that some of us might be strong and independent and well and all the rest of it, but some of us are elderly and some of us are children and some people are unborn children. We need that God-centered view of health and of the body. And we should care about every individual person. We should see everyone, everyone, as made in God's image, worthy of all respect and dignity. Ruth and I were reading yesterday the parable of the Good Samaritan and this culture of cancel, cancel culture, operated back then in those days, didn't it? Think of the lawyer at the end of that parable when Jesus says, who was the neighbor to the one who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer kind of spat out, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't bring himself to enunciate the word Samaritan because Samaritans are non-people. We hate the Samaritans. They don't belong. They're not like us. They don't look like us. They don't sound like us. They don't dress like us. They're not one of us. And against that, we say, no, me, self, my group, my tribe, if that's an idol... That results in mutual hatred and destruction and devastation, doesn't it? This is what we must say. The effects on life and society, friends, when we make any of these other things to be gods, the environment, a god, my human body and well-being, a god, My human soul and my thoughts and my opinions are God. When this happens, society is broken and damaged, fractured, at war with one another. Everything goes out of kilter. That happens. But more than that, when any of these things or anything else becomes the supreme being, the object of our worship then we have done exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 1 verse 25. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They weren't there from the beginning. They weren't self-existent. They didn't emerge from a big bang or from some eternal matter. They were made from nothing by the word of God. He's greater than all creation. The human body was formed by God. He formed it from the dust of the earth. He made a man and he took out of that man a woman. And he made those people. God was there. He made us. The soul, the real me, the self, the sense of who I am, of who you are, is put into you by God the creator. Who are you that you created yourself, that you should be your own God? You've, you've heard about people in recent years getting married to themselves and things like that. The world has gone mad. 
It's getting madder every day and every week, isn't it? Paul's mind, though you see, is turning to this. When any idol rises up and supplants and usurps and becomes a rival for my supreme affection and I start worshipping that, then the one true God is dishonoured. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe your own idol is something quite different from this. But maybe today an idol in your heart has been unveiled and exposed for exactly what it is, an idol. The pursuit of something other than God himself. And let me say this in closing. Hearing all of these things should not make any of us proud. One danger for me, today more than any other day with a sermon like this, is I can, I can declaim against idols and say how bad these idols are, and I'm right to do so. But in my own easily deceived, idolatrous heart, an idol of pride can be set up. An idol that says, well, I know that I'm right. And that's as bad as anything. Because we all need to be humbled. We don't worship an idol. We cannot. We must repent of our attachment to any and every idol. There is only one who is worth all your life and heart and mind and soul and strength and being. And he's the one who made you. And he's the one who can redeem you. And he's the one who can give you life everlasting. Because he's the one who sent his son. Who sent his son into this world of idolatry. Who sent his son to die for the sins of his people. Including these sins of idolatry. That he should die as it were guilty for all my sin. And all your sin and all our idolatry. And to be laid in a grave, having borne away the guilt and the penalty for all that. And then this Son of God rises on the third day. And he shows that he's defeated death and he's defeated sin and he's defeated idolatry. And then we would say again as God's people, who is like the Lord our God? Which other God has ever done this? Who else are you going to give your whole life And worship and devotion to, all the time knowing that while we're in this present world, these idols keep jumping up inside our hearts, don't they? Wanting our attention, wanting our devotion. But our God alone can save us. He has saved us. He's such a great God. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.